0: Our speaker tonight, Dr. Julie Fiez, received her PhD in neuroscience in 1992 from Washington University in St. Louis. She is currently a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh. She has authored over 60 papers on the relationship between brain function and the human capacity for language, working memory, and motivated behavior. On the basis of of this work, she has received distinguished research awards from the University of Pittsburgh, the American Psychological Society, the Alfred P. Sloan Society, and the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. In addition to speaking to us tonight about agonizing decisions, Dr. Fies has graciously agreed to make herself available bright and early at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning in the Hudson room for any students who might like to talk about becoming neuroscientists when they grow up. Uh, so, uh, if you're interested, uh, please don't agonize about whether to get up early enough tomorrow morning. Just, just do it. Please welcome Dr. Julie Fies.)
1: Thank you. It's very much a pleasure to be here. Our everyday language is filled with phrases that illustrate the tight connection between our body or our physiological state, and the emotions that we experience. For example, we talk of feeling someone's pain. We say that we are on the edge of our seat, or that our blood is boiling. This everyday use of our language is an acknowledgement of the strong connection that exists between our brain and our body. And it's this connection that will be at the center of my talk. My aim is to introduce you to modern neuroscience methods that have given us new insight into the powerful role of emotion in guiding our behavior. I'll start with a brief primer on the neural and physiological substrates of an emotional response to an unexpected stimulus, and then I'll turn to the important question of how such experiences can change our brains through two powerful learning systems. These learning systems give us the ability to make predictions about our future body states based upon an analysis of our current environment. This ability to anticipate, I'll conclude, can exert a potent influence over our behavior, giving us powerful drives towards certain types of actions and the ability to think through potential choices based upon the very personal consequences that they may have. Indeed, I hope to leave you with a set of intriguing questions about the fundamental interplay between human thought and emotion. To begin, Let's just consider two simple examples that illustrate the basic underpinnings of brain body function. If I could have the first slide. If you imagine for an instant or for a moment that you were walking barefoot, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, through uh, on the grass, and all of a sudden you experienced a very sharp pain you turn down, you look at your foot and you realize that a piece of glass has given you a nasty wound and that you have blood pouring from your foot and you take immediate action to to fix the injury, to repair the injury. That's what uh, happens in terms of events but what happens neurally and in your body? We could say that what happens is that you start out with a sensation carried by nerve endings in your foot that travel up to your brain traveling to the somatosensory or tactile area of your brain, which then sends information to areas such as the anterior cingulate, which is buried inside the front part of your brain, and the insula, also buried a little bit inside your brain, which are involved in the actual experience of pain. In addition, you send information down to the amygdala, this small area of the brain shown here in a slice cut through the brain like this. And the amygdala acts to help coordinate a body response. The amygdala serves to send connections to the hypothalamus, which can engage uh, both directly through the amygdala and indirectly through the hypothalamus. Brain stem centers, so here's our hypothalamus. Brain stem centers that serve automatic messages down to, for instance, uh, your lungs and your heart to affect your breathing and your respiration as well as hormones that do things such as mobilize how your body is going to use glucose in order to prepare yourself for this impending emergency. In addition to then provoking this physiological response in your body, your body is able to now detect these physiological changes, sending information back up to the brain that's both hormonal and neural that allows your body to uh, then have a perception of this emotional experience both directly in response to the initial processing of the painful input as well as secondarily as a consequence of sensing these body state changes. These mind-body connections exist for pleasurable events as well. For instance, if you have an unexpectedly delicious bite of food, Gustatory regions in your brain that are involved in the sensation of, of taste can send signals to brain pleasure signals, centers that can uh, serve to stimulate your appetite and reinforce the idea that this is a tasty morsel that you might want to eat more of. These examples that I've shared with you are entrenched in the moment. That is, I've described the way our brains respond adaptively to an unexpected threat or an unexpected rewarding event. This is crucial, but our odds of survival are significantly enhanced by our ability to foresee the future based upon the present. To put it in more mundane terms, we excel at learning from our experiences, both good and bad, so that we can anticipate potential harm and take appropriate measures to avoid them, or so that we can anticipate potential pleasures and take appropriate measures to maximize our gains. There are two learning systems that appear to be fundamentally involved in establishing this affective prediction, if you will. If I can have the next slide. The amygdala, which I talked about uh, on the last slide, is shown here. It's buried underneath the temporal part of your brain. It's a very small structure. You can see it here again in this slice cut through the brain. Uh, The amygdala plays not only a key role in coordinating our fight or flight responses, it is also crucially involved in the learning that occurs from the experience of aversive events. Much of our understanding about the amygdala comes from simple classical conditioning studies, such as the paradigm that's uh, simply illustrated on this slide. In such a paradigm, you might start by placing a rat inside of a box and nothing bad happens to the rat. The next day, however, you put it into the box and there's an electric floor in this box, and you deliver a mild shock and an aversive stimulus to the rat. This will cause the rat to freeze and uh, to hold himself steady, cause physiological changes such as an increase in heart rate uh, in response to this aversive event. If you precede the shock with a tone, and you do that consistently, then what you will find is that later you can present just the tone itself and the animal will engage in this freezing behavior and exhibit this physiological response. So we say that the animal has become conditioned to respond to the tone. We know from neuroscience now that the amygdala plays a central role in bringing together the aversive information such as the pain information delivered from the shock and its processing pathways with the sensory perceptual information about the previously neutral stimulus, in this case, the tone. And that through the amygdala, we strengthen those neural connections so that eventually the tone itself can drive this coordinated fight or uh, flight response. Now, a priori, it's conceivable that this learning that occurs could be mediated using relatively abstract, emotionally detached procedures. However, over the past decade, neuroscience research has provided compelling evidence that the neural substrates for anticipation are tightly linked to the same neural systems that are engaged during the actual experience of aversive and pleasurable events. One reason that this is likely to be true is because the learning that occurs isn't just restricted to the amygdala, to those set of neurons or cells that are located in the amygdala, Instead, as a part of this whole learning process, connections are strengthened all the way back to the sensory uh, pathways that provided input into the amygdala, which is sort of characterized on this uh, red line right here, as well as strengthening connections that head into frontal cortex. So thus, in addition to preparing the body to respond, Learn cues can establish a state of anticipation that also engages many of the same brain regions that are involved in the actual experience of the event. In some sense then, the cue itself, such as the tone in this case, actually can produce a shadow of the very feelings that we may be seeking to avoid in the case of a threat or seeking to experience in the case of a pleasure. A recent study by Davidson and colleagues um, illustrates this point. Before I show you the results from this study, let me just review briefly the methods that these investigators used. Uh, Davidson and colleagues used a method called functional neuroimaging, or fMRI, which many of you may have heard about, Um, but for those of you who haven't, let me give you just a very brief tutorial. In standard MRI imaging, um, you use magnetic fields to measure differences in water concentration in the tissue. Because the gray and the white matter of the brain have different water concentrations, this tool can provide superb structural images of the brain. The same machine can also be used to measure smaller differences in the magnetic field that are caused by changes in the concentration of oxygen in the blood. It turns out that the percentage of oxygen varies as a function of the amount of blood that is flowing to a particular brain region and the amount of blood that is, is influenced by how hard the neurons in that particular area are working. So therefore, very indirectly, by monitoring for changes in the magnetic field, it's possible to make inferences about changes in local neuronal activity. In the study by Davidson and colleagues, subjects saw a series of visual images, some of which were emotionally neutral, just everyday objects, and some of which were aversive, such as those that depicted uh, pictures of injured body parts. Each image was preceded by one of two visual shapes, and the shape that preceded it consistently predicted whether the following image would either be a neutral image or an aversive image. The idea was that through learning, subjects should become conditioned to anticipate either an aversive or a neutral image. And the key results are shown on this slide. If you can have the next slide up. This is a figure just taken from uh, their published work. What they've shown in this figure are a series of brain sections. And you'll notice that there are these sort of colored blobs every so often um, uh, in each of the sections. These are areas of activation in which there was more neuronal activity to the aversive as compared to the neutral images. What they were interested in examining is whether or not this brain activity occurred just when the subjects actually saw the aversive images or whether or not these changes occurred once the cue came on that could be used to predict that an aversive image would be occurring. What they found is that in a series of brain regions that have been associated with emotional processing, such as the amygdala and the anterior cingulate and uh, portions of of the uh, prefrontal cortex and the insula, these are all areas that you'll hear me refer to again throughout the talk, that in this entire set of areas, that these are areas that responded more to an aversive stimulus, which is shown by this red line or by the red bar, than a neutral stimulus, which is shown by the blue line or the blue bar, and importantly, in all of these areas, this difference in response between an aversive and a neutral image was found both in the anticipatory period and when the images were actually presented. So, the take-home message from, from this study, the authors claimed, is that it provided evidence that the regions, the brain regions that are activated when you experience something unpleasant, in this case the aversive images, those brain regions that are active during the time of the actual experience can also be activated by a cue that puts you in anticipatory state in which you're expecting an aversive image to occur. If I could have the next slide. Another brain system has been linked to learning about pleasurable stimuli. This system is centered in the basal ganglia, which is a collection of neurons that reside in the very center of our brains. It's hard to see them, but they would roughly be right here in the middle. The basal ganglia is heavily interconnected with frontal cortex, so there are strong projections from here out to the frontal parts of our brain. And the basal ganglia also receive modulatory input from a group of neurons located in the brainstem, which are shown uh, by these green and blue circles. These neurons, as I said, interconnect both to frontal cortex and with the basal ganglia. These brainstem neurons are special, or are thought to be special, because they release dopamine as a chemical neurotransmitter. Dopamine has long been of interest because it turns out that all known addictive drugs affect levels of dopamine signaling in the brain. For this reason, these dopamine neurons and the regions that they are interconnected with have long been viewed as part of a pleasure pathway, if you will, that is involved in drug abuse. In the late 1990s, neuroscientists began to record from the dopamine neurons of macaque monkeys using special techniques that allow the activity of single neurons to be monitored while the animal is awake and participating in the experiment. This work has fundamentally enhanced our understanding of how this system is critical for the processing of naturally occurring rewards, and not just the pathology associated with drug addiction. The most salient properties of these neurons are shown in uh, these figures, which are called raster plots. Each row in these raster plots indicates a single trial, and each dot indicates the firing of a neuron. So it's a moment in time in which that nerve cell is active. Up here we see a cumulative histogram where we're just merely summing across these trials to get a better sense on average of what's happening. Now the monkey's task in this trial was very simple. For this figure the monkey was just simply looking ahead and staring at a crosshair on a computer screen. Every so often, however, the monkey would receive a drop of juice that was unexpectedly delivered to its mouth. The moment at which the juice was delivered is marked by this vertical line. And what you can hopefully appreciate is that shortly after this drop of juice is delivered, which is labeled here R for reward, there is this momentary increase in the activity of these neurons. This finding might lead us to believe that these neurons are just signaling reward, that they're reward signaling neurons. But what was particularly interesting about these neurons, as uh, discovered by Schultz and colleagues, is that the story isn't that simple. If you consistently precede the drop of juice with some cue, such as a tone or uh, a light, what you find is that now the neurons respond to the unexpected cue, which consistently predicts that a reward will be delivered shortly in the future. At the time that the reward is delivered, you now actually don't even see a response. What happens if the animal's expecting something and he doesn't get it? That's what's shown down here on this figure. We see that once again, the conditioned cue comes on, such as the tone of the light the neuron has a brief burst of activity, and then everything looks the same until the moment at which the expected reward is not delivered. And in this case, we actually see a slight dip or decrease in the firing of the neuron. Based upon these findings, it has been claimed that dopamine neurons may code for errors of reward prediction that these air signals are then thought to provide a teaching signal that can be used to learn the cues that consistently signal an impending opportunity to gain a reward from the environment. Based upon this information we can then take the appropriate action to do what uh, we should optimally do in order to maximize those rewards that are out there for our potential gain. This work in macaque monkeys generated significant interest in the scientific community. And beginning in 2000, investigators using functional imaging began to look for parallel findings in humans. If I could have the next slide. I was um, one of those researchers, and in my lab we used a simple guessing task to evaluate which areas of the human brain respond differently to positive versus negative outcomes. The idea of the task was very, very simple. I can see that it's a little bit hard to see up here, but in essence what happened is that subjects during the imaging session would look at the computer screen and a little card would come on with a question mark the job of the subject was to guess whether or not the value of the card was higher or lower than five. They would make a guess during a choice period, and then there would be an outcome period in which they would see a number, and then they would get an arrow, either an upwards green arrow, which would denote that they just won a dollar for making a correct guess, or a downwards red arrow, denoting that they just lost 50 cents for an incorrect guess. And we asked a simple question, which is, which areas of the brain seem to care about the outcome? That is, which areas of the brain respond differently to a positive outcome of a monetary gain or a negative outcome of a monetary loss? And the area that we've now seen consistently across studies, although I can appreciate that it's hard to see from this figure, is in the basal ganglia, the site where these dopamine neurons project. And just an example of the time course of these activities the neurons of this region is shown here, you can see that for a negative event you actually have a steep initial rise and then a dip below baseline whereas with a monetary gain you have a rise that's sustained in time. Now if you recall the recordings from dopamine neurons that connect into the basal ganglia change over time. As rewarding outcomes become predicted by a cue the firing of these neurons shifts to the cue. Thus, just as the amygdala seems to play a crucial role in generating anticipatory signals about impending threats, the basal ganglia is important for generating anticipatory signals about potential rewards. As was the case with the amygdala, the frontal cortex becomes, through learning, a major site for these anticipatory signals. Two studies that demonstrate this point are shown on the next slide. Again, in my effort to bridge across species, I've shown you results from work done in macaque monkeys and work done in humans. This example comes from work done in macaque monkeys. It was a finding reported by Wolfram Schultz, who did the original work with the dopamine neurons. What he's done here is create a task in which monkeys are given a visual instruction cue. This instruction cue is an abstract visual stimulus but it provides the information that through learning the monkey can learn what movement they need to make and also what kind of reward they will get if they do it correctly. After this instruction signal there is a delay and then a cue comes on or a trigger that tells them to go ahead and execute the movement and then the monkey executes the movement, and then they earn the the reward that was inside. One thing that was interesting about this study is that Schultz and colleagues examined and identified for each monkey their relative food preferences. So, for instance, uh, in in this monkey, uh, an apple was less preferred than, um, I think it's raisin that's up there, okay? What they found is that the activity in response to the instruction and right before they executed the movement, when they were most anticipating getting this reward, was sensitive to the relative value. So that not only did it fire an anticipation of the reward, the magnitude of the neuronal response was greater when they were anticipating a reward for a food that they liked more than the other one. In humans, conditioned responses in frontal neurons have also been shown. This is an example of a study in which there was also a card guessing task, but this time, instead of just having red and green arrows, the outcome was superimposed upon these abstract figures. After people had been exposed to a conditioning phase, the uh, experimenters then just showed the images uh, to the subjects and compared the brain responses to patterns that had been paired with a positive outcome to patterns that had been paired with a negative outcome and what they found is that once again there were cue related differences with areas for instance in uh, prefrontal cortex in the ventral regions exhibiting more activity to cues that had been paired with a positive outcome a positive reward than cues that had been paired with a negative outcome Before I move on, let me take a moment just to recap the basic points that I've covered so far. First, what I've argued is that there is a tight bi-directional relationship between activity in the brain and the state of our body. Second, we learn from our experiences using the amygdala and the basal ganglia to build connections between cues in the environment, and these are the cues that reliably predict potential threats and potential pleasures. Third, as a result of this learning, Environmental cues can serve as triggers that place our brain and body in a state of anticipation in which there is a high similarity to how our brain and body would be affected by the actual experience of the expected aversive or pleasurable event. What I'd like to turn to now is the question of what do we do with these anticipatory signals? That is, how does our ability to predict and experience a potential future emotional state affect our current behavior? The answer to this question is very much open to debate and indeed there's not likely to be a single answer. So instead of giving you the answer, what I'd like to do is focus on giving you a sense of some of the ideas and research findings that are currently shaping the scientific debate. One idea is that these anticipatory states create a drive for behavior. For instance, a cue that predicts a potential threat can elicit a strong sense of anxiety and evoke a fight-or-flight response so that a potential threat can be avoided. A cue that predicts a potential reward can elicit a powerful approach behavior. For instance, it can provide an incentive to engage in effort in order to obtain a goal. One example of this notion of these anticipatory states and their value comes from a single cell recording study reported by Olson and colleagues, which is shown on the next slide. Olson and colleagues once again were recording from single neurons, and they selected as sites to record from neurons in orbital frontal cortex, which is the site where the neurons identified by Schultz and colleagues that showed relative reward preferences were located, and which is also the site where uh, humans show these differential responses to images that have been paired with positive versus negative outcomes. In addition, they also made recordings in motor areas that uh, are placed right before the final execution of the motor act, so pre-motor areas that are engaged in motor planning behavior. They then designed a study in which monkeys had a very simple task to do. Each trial began with looking at a fixation point and then they would receive a cue, which they called incentive cues. These incentive cues would inform the monkey uh, what the possible outcome was for this trial. And what was particularly clever about this experiment is that they had uh, cues that signaled both large and small rewards, so in other words, whether or not the monkey was gonna get three drops of juice or one drop of juice. They also had a large penalty and a small penalty. Now, they didn't want to shock the monkeys because then they would just refuse to work. So the penalty in this study was a timeout. Turns out that monkeys really don't like to take a timeout. And so uh, the cue would inform them how long they would have to wait before they would have a chance to do another trial and earn something good, like some juice. So this incentive cue would serve as a signal that this trial either needed to be performed correctly to earn a reward, or perform correctly to avoid a punishment. So, and the magnitude of it was manipulated. So we could imagine that monkeys were either in a high or low motivational state, either because they really wanted to get that reward, those drops of juice, or because they really did not want to have a timeout. After the cue came on, there was a delay interval. And then these stimuli, these little dots, would come outside the center of fixation. The job of the monkey is to move their eyes to the location of those targets, depending upon whether or not they were cued to move left or right. And so then the monkey executes the eye movement, and then they get feedback about whether or not they hit the right target location, and then they earn their reward or get their punishment, depending upon uh, how they did. What Olson and colleagues found is replicating the results of Schultz and colleagues that in these orbital frontal regions, there was a larger response to the Q that came on, and it was greater for the large reward than the neutral condition. Interestingly, the large penalty condition did not evoke a large response. Olson and colleagues suggested that this suggests that in orbital frontal cortex, the representations are valence-specific. That is, these neurons are really sending signals about motivation to work for something good. They're not sending signals about how hard you should work to avoid something that's bad. They uh, speculated that those neurons might be located in a slightly different place in prefrontal cortex. And then, Right before the monkey begins to execute the movement, we again see a ramp up of these neurons in expectation of the reward delivery. Now what I didn't include on this slide, but the other important component of their findings, is that when they looked at these motor regions, they found that the activity of the neurons was enhanced in the high motivation conditions, both the high reward and the high punishment. What Olson and colleagues suggested is that these orbital frontal neurons are sending what some people would call a "why" signal. Why should I do this? What's the motivation for doing this? And in the case of this specific location, prefrontal cortex, it's specifically your motivation in order to get something good. That information is then relayed to uh, premotor regions and helps them, sort of in a sense, work harder so that performance is more likely to be quicker and more accurate. Now there's also other ideas about these anticipatory states. For instance, another one is that these anticipatory states provide information about potential consequences. That is, by emulating how we would feel if something actually happened, we can use this projected information to make the best decisions at the moment. In other words, to help place a value on different choices. Support for this idea comes from recent work in the area of neuroeconomics, which is a field in which investigators are trying to understand the reality of human decision-making in neural terms. An example of this comes from a neuroimaging study by Knudsen and colleagues, which is shown on the next slide. You can get a sense of where these investigators are going by their splashy title, Neural Predictors of Purchases. In this study, There were again multiple phases to each trial. It would begin with the display of a product on the screen, such as an image of a box of Godiva chocolates. And then price information would be shown, which would indicate how much it would cost to buy this in this pretend shopping game that subjects are engaged in during the scanning session and then subjects are instructed to make a choice do you or do you not want to buy this product given the price that it costs and then there's a little delay and then the next trial comes on what these investigators observed was that there were brain areas which were of a priori interest to them in which the pattern of activity could actually be used to predict the choices the decisions that people made even more clearly than things like their stated product preferences or their stated price breaking points at the end of the scan. So in other words, the brain data seemed to be a better predictor of the decisions that the subjects made than what the subjects self-reported at the end of the scanning session. What they argued is that the decision that's made reflects the interplay between areas that are involved in representing the rewarding anticipation of how this product would make you feel if you actually did acquire it and they claim that for instance one of the brainy regions centrally involved in that is a region in the brain called the nucleus accumbens which is one of the targets of these dopamine neurons and which projects into that orbital frontal region that I was showing you that Olson and colleagues recorded from so it's part of what some people would argue is this reward pathway or reward circuit What they found is that when the subject purchased the product, which is shown by this dark dotted line, activity in the nucleus accumbens was greater than when the subject decided not to purchase the product, which is shown in that lighter gray line. So a simplistic interpretation of this is that the more you're thinking about how good this thing is going to be, the more activation you observe in the nucleus accumbens and the more likely you make it that you're actually going to purchase that product. Why might you not purchase something that you want? Well, the authors suggest in this paper that you might not decide to purchase it because you don't like the negative feelings that come with thinking about having to part with your money. So if you think about the cost, the price that you have to pay, that can provide an aversive input which can offset your thoughts about uh, the positive rewarding values of actually having it in hand. So what they observed in a region called the insula, which is part of a region we'll see later that's activated during pain perception, is that not when the product is first shown, but once you reveal the price, you begin to get differences, and this time the activity is greater when the object is not purchased than when it is purchased. So they suggested that perhaps a part of the choice making in this case represents what these cues and what this information does in terms of setting up anticipatory states about how you're going to feel. How good you're going to feel if you get this object, and how bad you're going to feel about actually having to part with your money. And that the balance between these regions can be used to predict the actual choice that subjects make. Let's see if I can have the next slide. Sorry. Um, There's also been suggestions that this same ability to anticipate how we will feel is important not only for thinking about our own experiences and the actual outcomes of decisions for us, but they may underlie some of the social behavior in which we engage. An example of data that supports this claim comes from a study in which the uh, subjects were in the scanner, and on some trials, uh, a shock, an aversive shock, was actually delivered to their hand, and that's uh, indicated by uh, by the green line and you can see uh, by these lines and by these images shown up here that regions such as a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate as well as the insula near where I showed you for that uh, pricing area, once you see the cost that's entailed in buying a product, that these areas respond to the delivery of a shock. So they've been implicated in this pain network. What these investigators found is that these same regions were also active when the subject watched their married partner uh, having a shock delivered to their hand. So now the subject is not actually experiencing the shock, instead they're watching uh, their partner, their spouse, have a shock delivered to them. The same areas are active, and what they found is that the degree to which a subject exhibited a response to their partner having a shock delivered to them Correlated very highly with standardized measures of empathy. So, that has led in uh, social psychology uh, fields to the idea that our ability to have empathy to another individual may be related to the degree to which, in a sense, we really do feel someone else's pain. That is, the degree to which our own uh pain networks are driven by the sensory information that we observe happening to someone else and the more that happens the more we're able to empathize with the state that that person is in okay if i could have the next slide <clears throat> the ideas that i have discussed the ideas that anticipatory states provide a drive for human behavior, that they help us to represent the consequences of our choices and the events that other individuals experience in bodily terms, highlight the role of emotion in guiding our behavior. What I'd like to um, turn to in conclusion is the issue of how these emotional processes interact with our more intellectual cognitive appraisals of how and why we act the way we do. And in this case, the current discussion is driven by a somewhat simplistic idea that centers around two broad distinctions in prefrontal cortex. The more lateral segment of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex receives predominantly information and interacts with areas involved in attention and sensory perception. The more ventral regions, such as these orbital frontal regions that I've been talking about, predominantly receive information from areas involved in the processing of affect, such as the amygdala and uh, these dopamine neurons. That's led to the somewhat simplistic idea that we may want to think about hot versus cold cognition that is that these dorsolateral regions are involved if you will in thinking with our heads in thinking in a very rational way intellectual way and that the more ventral regions are involved in thinking with our heart so to speak that is thinking based upon um, reflection upon our affective or emotional states the question has been how do these areas interact and once again There are different ideas that have uh, been placed within uh, the literature. One idea is that uh, the cold cognition areas serve to help regulate or control our basic drives. That is to put the stop on things that uh, we really don't want to have happen. Some evidence for this perspective comes again from some work in my lab that's focused on uh, smoking use and the influence of smoking cues on smoking behavior and the processes that are important when someone is trying to quit uh, smoking Based upon a review of the literature and our own research findings, we have postulated that there are a network of brain areas that become active when a smoker or some other drug user sees a drug cue. So for instance, for someone who smokes, this could be a a picture of a cigarette or actually placing a cigarette in their hand. This cue exposure can cause activation in a number of regions, uh, including the amygdala, a region of the brain called the anterior cingulate, this orbital frontal region that I've talked about previously, as well as this dorsal lateral p- portion of the prefrontal cortex. What we found that was particularly intriguing is that these regions are not always active, and that one thing that's particularly intriguing is that when you see activity in dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, It appears to depend upon whether or not there's a conflict between a person's uh, current Q exposure, current availability to use the drug, and their intentions about drug use. When those things are in conflict, that appears to be when you engage dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So for instance, uh, we found that across the literature, there was evidence for more activation in this dorsolateral prefrontal region when individuals currently outside of treatment were exposed to a drug cue. We speculated that this is because the cue evokes a craving for the drug. They're stuck in the scanner in this imaging session and they can't have the drug right that moment and so they engage dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in order to engage in planning behavior about how they might acquire this drug little activation is seen in individuals who currently are in treatment and who are not expecting to have access and actually don't want to have access to the drug after the scanning session the converse is also true that is activation is higher when a person is uh, is trying to quit and they're presented with an opportunity an immediate opportunity to use the drug so by this argument the idea would be the more successfully you can engage in regulation and somehow control your affective responses, the more able you will be able to achieve the goal state that you have set for yourself. There's also another theory that has gained predominance in the literature and that is the idea that there is a key interplay between hot and cold cognition with respect to the kinds of reasoning that we engage in. This is uh, illustrated on, on the next slide. These findings emerge from work in which investigators have been probing the kinds of moral decisions or judgments that people reach. And what they focused on are scenarios in which individuals are asked to make a choice about what they think is appropriate or what they would be willing to do and so for instance they've asked subjects to make decisions like the following imagine that there is a a trolley coming down the tracks and it's going to run into and kill five individuals. The only way to save these five individuals is to flip a switch so that the trolley will be diverted into another track. However as a consequence it's now going to hurt an individual that's standing on that track. Is it acceptable to switch the lines and uh, have that one individual die, but at the, at the benefit of saving those other five lives. If you ask people this question, there's fairly good agreement that that's an acceptable thing to do, and a person can imagine making that choice. You actually ask them to make the choice. Do you, you, know, do you think this is okay? And most people will say yes. If you present them with a different scenario, such as imagine that there's a trolley coming down the tracks and it's going to, once again, run into five people. This time there's a footbridge spanning the tracks and uh, there's a rather portly person standing next to you on the footbridge. This person is large enough so that if you throw them off the footbridge, they will land on the tracks. This may not be the most plausible, but um, you get the idea. It will land on the tracks and uh, be enough to stop the train. (laughs) They didn't show an image of this individual. (laughs) And you ask people, is that acceptable? Is it acceptable again to sacrifice one life in order to save these other five lives? And what you'll find is that people have a very hard time making a choice about this and that there's much less agreement. Now, we can make it perhaps a little bit more dramatic and plausible. You can create other scenarios, such as imagine that uh, there is a village that is being attacked. And uh, the enemy soldiers are going to kill every one of the villagers that they find. And there's a group of villagers that are hiding in a hidden location in one of the huts. Uh, But there's a baby who's starting to cry. Uh, The only way to save everyone who's in hiding is to smother the baby so that it won't cry. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable to sacrifice the life of the infant in order to save the life of everyone else in the village when if you don't uh, sacrifice the life of the infant, everyone's going to die anyway? This also is a very difficult choice for people to make, and you get a very mixed set of responses. So there are individuals that have been interested in trying to understand what's the neural basis for this difference in behavior. Why is it sometimes judged acceptable by people to uh, lose one life for the gain of five? And why is it unacceptable at other times? what they've argued is that the difference may come down to whether or not the judgment is viewed in personal terms that is whether or not the cost of the life is viewed as something that you personally would have to engage in or do in order to achieve the end that you're seeking and in that context they argue that you begin to engage this affective uh... reasoning process so as an example of this on this slide The investigators have contrasted difficult versus easy personal moral judgments. And what they have found is that in this situation, you get activation both in this more dorsal region of prefrontal cortex as well as the more orbital portion of prefrontal cortex. It suggests that you're engaging in both when the decision-making becomes difficult. They then looked at what kinds of choices did people make, So when it's a difficult choice, sometimes people make what uh, they term the utilitarian judgment. That is, they decided to go ahead and save the lives of five or more people at the cost of one. Sometimes they made the non-utilitarian judgment. What they observed is that when individuals made the utilitarian judgment, they produced more activation in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex than when they made the non-utilitarian judgment. So the degree to which these investigators argued, you engaged this cold area of cognition for engaging in your decision making, the more likely you were to come out with a utilitarian judgment, a utilitarian decision. Now we could ask how do we know that that these patterns of activation really are telling us something meaningful about how individuals actually behave. One way to get insight into that is to look at converging work in which you look at the effects of brain damage. An example of that is shown down here. This comes from a a recent study in which the investigators identified a group of people who had damage to this orbital ventral portion of the brain. That's shown by this overlapping area of red. So that was the group of common damage across these group of patients. They then asked these patients to engage in a number of different kinds of moral judgments, and they compared them to just normal control subjects and to individuals that had brain damage in other areas of the brain. What they found is that the patients performed perfectly normally on uh, any just kind of non-moral judgment task. They looked exactly like control subjects. They also looked exactly like control subjects on uh, on moral judgments that were not personal, such as could you switch the train tracks in order to sacrifice the life of one individual. Where they differed were on these very personal moral judgments where you had to decide if sort of you as an individual, if that would be appropriate for you to engage in that kind of activity to very personally take the life of another individual. And what they found is that the individuals with damage in this more ventral region showed an increased likelihood of these utilitarian judgments. So the inference was that without this more ventral activity, these more ventral contributions to the decision making, you're more likely to engage in a more utilitarian judgment. They then showed that this held true as you looked at the exact questions the more personal the scenario becomes and the more difficult it becomes and the more you get differences of opinion just between normal control subjects the more the brain damaged subjects resorted to a utilitarian judgment as their outcome So, in summary um... what i hope that my talk today has done is provided you with a thought-provoking overview of modern neuroscience methods it's just the tip of the iceberg but i've tried to select results that i thought were uh, some of the most intriguing and noteworthy in the past couple of years and hopefully i've given you a sense of how these results can be applied to gain new insights into some of the most fundamental aspects of our human behavior uh, as i'm sure you can appreciate there are many many open questions that remain there's many different points of view on how these results could be interpreted And uh, so I'm looking forward uh, with you to the opportunity to speculate on what the future of research in this area might hold and how it relates to some of the other disciplines of inquiry that are outside of the area of neuroscience. Thank you.